0: Hey, I am really excited today to talk to Dr. Rebecca, Becky, Hosey, who is going to, we are going to talk about Sjogren's. We're going to talk about medical gaslighting, her story. I'm really excited. So welcome. Thank you so
1: much for having me.
0: I'm excited. I met you at the Autoimmune Summit last um, fall of 2023. So just a little shout out to those kinds of um, educational events from nonprofits are so great to for, um, you know, getting the community together and learning from each other. But first of all, I want to know a little bit about you. You know, where do you live and what is your relationship to chronic illness? Although I already kind of gave it away in your
1: introduction. (laughs) Oh, so um, I live in upstate New York and I have Sjogren's disease. I am also a medical provider. So I'm a chiropractor times 20 years and a physician assistant times 14 So I also have experience with chronic disease in the medical realm as well as a provider.
0: And that's so, that's so great. Having both the inside out view of the healthcare system and the outside in, you would think that that would make it easier for you as a patient, but as we'll see, it doesn't always, but I actually, before we move on to your personal story, um, can you explain what is a physician's assistant, also known as a PA?
1: Sure, so a physician assistant has two years of really intensive training. Um, So bachelor's degree, of course, with pre-medical sciences, biology, chemistry, physics, and then they go on to a two-year program, uh, which involves both um, academics as well as clinical experiences. And at the end, um, I received a master's degree. There are some doctorate programs, and uh, we actually can practice medicine. Of course, we are under the supervision of a um, a physician, um, but we actually really have uh, the ability to move and work in multiple different specialties. So actually, what's great about being a PA versus a medical doctor is the flexibility. So if I wanted to work in, say, pediatrics, and then I wanted to work in cardiovascular surgery, I could just go ahead and um, and make that, uh, adjustment.
0: Yeah. And I, I think it's really good for patients to know that when they see that designation, like physician assistant, it's not the same, like the word assistant doesn't mean like that they're un- it's an unskilled, like it is a skilled licensed profession. You know, I'm sure you have to do continuing education,
1: you're licensed with your state, stuff like that. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, there has been a a change. It either is physician associate or physician assistant. So I still kind of go by physician assistant just because that was (laughs) my designation when I graduated. But uh, physician associate is also an accepted term.
0: Oh, that's really great. I didn't realize. There's so many, oh my gosh, we could talk all day long about words and like the different meanings, you know, how, like we have talked numerous times on this podcast before about even just the word arthritis and how misleading that can be. And so our occupational therapy, we don't just do jobs, but- I do really want to, I'm getting better at being linear and following my schedule, sk- my outline here. So, um, you know, I really would love to know a bit about your diagnosis story slash saga, you know, what were some of your first symptoms and how did you eventually get
1: your diagnosis of Sjogren's disease? Sure. So it was a very convoluted one. Um, <laughs> let's just say that. So, I was working as a physician assistant in interventional pain medicine. That's where most of my clinical experience actually uh, lies in that field. And um, in 2015, when I had just turned 37, I developed fatigue, muscle weakness, and joint pain. And the fatigue was just, it was so profound. I did what we're all supposed to do, which is call primary care. And I went to primary care. I was diagnosed with some unspecified viral infection. I was given kind of, you know, the the really standard instructions, rest, fluids, etc., call back if you're not approved. The issue became when I actually got worse and not better over weeks. I returned back to primary care, and the primary care provider um, actually dismissed me. She said to me, did you follow my instructions? I cannot believe you're not better. And I'm thinking, Wait, wait a minute. You know, like I was so taken back. I mean, I was just floored. Here I am, this well respected health provider in the area. I'd only met this primary care provider one time, several months before when I established care. So this was like my first kind of, you know, say, acute visits with her, um, but totally changed. I mean, from the initial visit. I mean, she acted like I was, you know, putting her out. Like it was an inconvenience for her to see me, and I was not better. So, yeah, she I'm
0: so sorry you experienced that, and i just I just want to pause for a second to you know acknowledge how difficult that experience is, and I know people listening oftentimes you blame yourself already you know before coming into the appointment and then to have your provider who's in that position of power, even though you are also a health you know provider as a physician's assistant slash associate and that context of that appointment, you are in the, she's in the power position because she has the power to diagnose you in that, in that relationship. And to, to say that you're not because the fact that your condition isn't better means that you must be doing something wrong. or maybe you're lying to me. That's just such a, um, un what would be a good, what's the word for that? It's such an unjust way of looking at it. So I'm just, I'm sorry you had to go through that.
1: You didn't yeah, have to. Exactly. I sorry, you did go through that. Yeah, it, it just floored me. I could not believe. So um, I thank goodness I have this medical education. I said, can you please order this test, this test, this test? Because she really wasn't going to order any tests. And um, of course, you know, just generalized labs came back abnormal. My white count was elevated. My platelets were elevated. My sed rate was elevated. Um, and but follow up. You know, follow following up with her, she still didn't believe me, even though I had the subjective data to say there's some kind of like, you know inflammation going on, right? So we know that most diseases, the underlying cause is actually inflammation. So I mean, we'll say non-specific findings, but some findings, right? Some objective findings. But um I mean, I had to claw and fight to get referred to uh, um other specialists. And finally,, um, you know, one visit, she said to me, "You don't look sick." and i don't think you want to get better. Man, i can't even make this up, really. Yeah. I'm my and, jaw
0: i just hurt my jaw dropping my jaw to the floor <laughs> literally. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wow. I basically would not cry in front of her. I walked out of the building and tears started streaming, you know, streaming down my face and um at that moment i will say i had a pity party. Um but it was you know, stand for myself, but within probably, I don't know, three seconds, a minute, it was like selective sorrow. And that was even more emotionally overtaking. I was just sobbing, like standing next to this tree, like leaning against this tree in this parking lot, because I thought about all the patients that are way more disadvantaged than myself and how are they successful navigating when here I am this you know kind of higher up on the food chain in the medical food chain kind of person i mean i know the inner workings you know i know what tests to ask for i know what referrals to ask for you know um how do others much more disadvantaged navigate successfully and you know the answer is they don't and i felt this sadness and i knew at that moment i wanted to um, well first i said i'm going to figure out what's wrong Mm -hmm. and I'm going to help others. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do something. I didn't know exactly how that was going to take shape.
0: I mean, that's that's incredible. And I totally agree with you. I mean, the reason that autoimmune illnesses take on average, I always butcher the statistic, but it's something like four to six years to diagnose. It's worse if you're a female, worse if you're younger. And, you know, I think providers, it's easy to have an us versus them mentality and say, like, they're all mean, and they all hate us. And in reality, medical providers like yourself are probably often taught, you know, and like myself taught, you know, if you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras, you know, the most oxcombs razor. Is that how you say it? Oxcombs razor? Yes. Yeah. The simplest, the simplest explanation is the best. And that's, that's not true for everyone. And the reality is so much messier. And, um and no wonder, I mean, there's, someone asked me once, did you, when I was pursuing my diagnosis um, at that point, I was only 20. I'd never had any health issues before. I just, I was used to blindly trusting doctors. And that was, that was what was so cognitively dissonant for me was that I'm like, doctors help people. I'm not being helped. And, but I can't reconcile these two because I wasn't willing to I didn't want to believe that doctors could be so unhelpful as they were. Like something is wrong. I can't figure out this problem, and I kept saying it was like my body's on fire, and I called the firefighters, and they're like, "My diagnosis is your body's not on fire, and like you're not you nothing. There's no fire." And you're like, "But there, I know there's a fire, but you're. I also respect you, and you're telling me there's not a fire. So it's a very uh, um yeah and." at your stage, you had been a healthcare provider for over a decade. So maybe you, maybe had, had you already been introduced to the concept of medical gaslighting at this point, or seen patients in your pain clinic that had kind of gone through
1: something similar? Yeah. You know, a uh, great question because I'm, I've always been very compassionate, very empathetic, but honestly, I just did not get it until it happened to me. I didn't get it. Yes. i saw patients for many years as both a chiropractor and a physician assistant that, you know, would, would tell me like my doctor's not listening to me. And I guess, you know, I just did not get that until I myself was a vulnerable patient. Mm. I did not get it. Well,
0: that takes a lot of, um, I would say vulnerability and humility to, to, I don't want to say admit that, but to acknowledge that and I don't know if this is going to sound like the weirdest analogy, but I'm, it's, I feel like it's kind of like, we all think we would do it differently when we're looking at someone else's experience. Like I'm literally watching the Olympics. Like if I were or watching, let's say a better example would be like American football. I was watching last night and I'm like, I would go this way. And I'm like, what am I talking about? Like I would die if I was trying to play, I could tackle them and die. Like, why do I think, but it's like our brain's way of protecting us to so say, well, if I Or My medical training would have protected me. My communication skills would have protected me. So I think in a way, it's almost so scary for us to confront the randomness of life that it's um, easier to say, well, it wouldn't happen to me. So you didn't get it. And there's a saying in chronic illness, you don't get it till you get it. Sounds like that. Resonated. Exactly what happened. How did you eventually weasel your way into rheumatology? Is the rheumatologist who <laughs> diagnosed, I'm saying weasel as, as as sarcastically meaning like you had to really advocate to get yourself there.
1: Oh yeah. And that is a whole, I mean, how much time do
0: we have honestly? Yeah. Um, but I wish we, there are, sadly, this could be like a 24 part
1: series. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so my Memory care provider refused to refer me to rheumatology, even though I had seen like 10 other specialists and you know, just my medical knowledge, I said, no, I gotta get to rheumatology, you know. Um, so I did weasel my way, that's a good word, to get an appointment without a referral. So yes, I did. I I told the receptionist a little too much about my life, I'm sure, <laughs> on the phone, you know. I, you know, I have trouble working, I'm having these symptoms, my set rate is 70, You know, I need to come in and be seen. So, But I still had to wait months to get the appointment and I know this irritated the primary care provider, very much so. But in any event, I'll just give you the quick synopsis. When I showed up to rheumatology, um, that was an unbelievable experience. Um, and <laughs> I was so medically gaslit there Um, so I don't know if you want me to stop and just define medical gaslighting. Oh,
0: yes. Thank you for remembering. Um, I was saying before we started hit record that maybe we should define it for people who haven't heard this phrase before. What what was your definition? Sure. Well,
1: you know, gaslighting is psychological manipulation. Okay. Um, and in the medical realm, this can take place as a provider, basically discounting the patient's symptoms making them believe that it's all in their head so with you know we can kind of get into some of the causes of of why that um why i believe that occurs
0: yeah yeah and just just one thing is i know some people who are the um who are literary or what's the word who are really into the like official meaning of words there's a little bit of a debate in the field around in the medical field in the chronic illness world around the word gaslighting uh Originally, gaslighting meant a psychological technique that was overt and intentional where you intentionally, you know what reality is, you as a manipulator know what reality is. And you say, I'm going to make this person think that they're quote unquote crazy by telling them the reality is not true. Whereas in the difference in the, I kind of call it sometimes unintentional medical gaslighting because I think. Most providers are not evil manipulators who who end up contributing to medical gaslighting. They truly think you, Dr. Becky, were not sick, or me, Cheryl, was just an anxious twenty-year-old Type A person. So, they're if they weren't like she has rheumatoid arthritis, but I'm going to tell her she doesn't because I'm evil. They're they're kind of you know they're like no. When I hear I heard hoofbeats, I think horses, not zebras. She looks fine. She's a twenty-year-old. Talking about myself. Um, and, you know, she's losing weight. Oh, she also, the other one for me was a trigger warning eating disorder. So they thought I had an eating disorder because I had severe muscle mass loss from rheumatoid cachexia. So I went from 130 pounds to 105. They told me that told my parents, they called my parents behind my back and said, she's hiding an eating disorder when I had never had any history of an eating disorder or obsessive, you know, behavior around food or body image or anything like that. Um, in fact, I was starving but my body wasn't retaining the food long story short so um so yeah that that I still think that the, the the intent or the the impact is that the person feels gaslit because their reality is being discounted you as the patient are saying I'm sick the p- doctor is saying you're not sick and I'm the one in the p- position of power to determine whether you're sick or not so my, what I say goes
1: Right, right. So yes. So let's talk for a minute uh, about consciousness versus unconsciousness, right? Or, you know, these providers are just part of like the system. Okay. That's broke. That's fractured the health system. Okay. So yes, exactly. So I do believe that most providers go into medicine for altruistic reasons. I really do believe that, but I do believe there's some corruption of these providers along the way because of all the constraints of this fractured medical system. So, I mean, really, I do believe there are um, you know, two major kind of components to this medical, ga- you know, behind this medical gaslighting. Uh, one of them being society's influence on medicine. So, society, you know, has always had an impact on medicine traditionally, the toxins of society. So, what's happening in society, all these intolerances, the biases, prejudices, this is all happening in medicine, all of it. And, you know, that's very rarely spoken of. Um, those, Particular intolerances and those particular cultural ideals also lead to a lack of research. So, for instance, we'll just take, you know, autoimmune disease. Right, Sjogren's um, is in most autoimmune diseases are female dominant. Okay. And Sjogren's, right? The average person is a female, ninety percent female. They are diagnosed forties to fifties, so middle age. All right. So I don't have to go into kind of how uh, middle-aged women are viewed in our culture right now, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, so we can picture that there's crumbs of research, right, so crumbs, so when a female presents to the doctors complaining of joint pain, fatigue, are they, the provider, first of all, has a lack of information, okay, they have a lack of information, and maybe they also have their kind of, like, internalized kind of intolerances, internalized kind of things, so not vicious as far as, yes, like what you're saying, like, is this a conscious thing or an unconscious thing, right? They're falling into this routine. Add that with the transformation of medicine, right? The corporatization of medicine, which is a fancy term, just means that these non-medical corporations are buying up these medical facilities, these medical businesses. I mean, we don't, we rarely see these mom and pop, little shop, you know, small kind of um, businesses where you get more personalized care. And now these providers have so many constraints. So yes, we'll just say, Fictitiously, Mrs. Jones shows up, right? And Mrs. Jones is complaining of the same things I did that I had, all right? So fatigue, muscle weakness, joint pain. I also had dryness. Um, <laughs> so, and now you have a provider that's overtaxed. So they are seeing too many patients in a you know a short amount of time. They have a lot of administrative duties. Their autonomy is gone because of this perpetration. And they also don't have information because there's a lack of research that will just elevate the the chances of medical gaslighting. So yeah, so I don't necessarily think it's a vicious thing. I think it's also this kind of cyclic um, issue that honestly, we could spend probably, like you said, 24 yeah. sessions.
0: Yeah, no, I, I love how you wove these, the 20,000 foot view into it, because you're right, the patient, or me, when I think of my own history of medical gaslighting, I kind of get fixated on the individuals and think if I could have just told them, if I could have just said something different. And, and it's, it's important when you're looking at maybe solutions to this or root cause analysis, what caused that, what, what larger in society caused some of these things. And you're so right. It's the profit driven corporate healthcare system Um, that's never gonna, a profit driven system is never going to benefit the people with chronic illnesses because our illnesses are expensive to maintain. They want to just get us out of their way, you know, um, give us as little as possible. And, you know, the, um, societal, they just started in the American College of Rheumatology or sorry, I should say, I just became aware that at, so maybe they started this like years ago, but I don't think it was done, let's say in the nineties, a whole area in the uh, annual meeting, the annual conference, um, ACR um, convergence, is a whole section of the program called social determinants of health. You know, and that's in it's looking at racism, sexism, ableism, and um, socioeconomic status, rural versus urban splits, all you know um, things, things like you know vaccine hesitancy and what contributes to that. And so anyway, I'm just rambling, but I'm, I'm trying to kind of, um, just reflect on these societal issues that lead to gaslighting.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think many medical providers are really great about treating the acute, right? This diagnose, treat, cure that's like nailed in all medical education. Okay. But what happens when the patient doesn't get better when they still come back with the same complaints like I did? you yeah. know, when, they, when they're when not, when there is no cure. So what, how is that handled? And I think really medical education um, from, you know, students all the way up to the most seasoned practitioners, I think to, there has to be a reform. And I think that practitioners need to be educated. And, you know, it's one of the things that I do is I go into these medical programs, these medical institutions, and I talk to these students of medicine. I tell them my story and we talk about solutions.
0: I'm that was you totally anticipated my next question, which is like, what are the things we can do to come combat medical gaslighting? We are going to go back to that point where you actually got finally got this is the summit of the mountain of the diagnosis hero's journey. Um, but, um, but yeah, so stay tuned for more, but, um, but yeah, so, so to combat medical gaslighting, having more of this information in in the medical education, um, even naming it. I think there's just such a power in naming. I didn't know what gaslighting was. I never heard the phrase "medical gaslighting" until I had been active on social media. And once I heard that phrase, it like unlocked something in my brain. And I even talked to my therapist about it. And I was like, "This makes me realize again. It made me realize that it's just a, more of a universal experience. It's not just me." Like I kept thinking because of wanting the illusion of control. Well, if I I was too deferential to authority. I didn't advocate for myself well enough. Maybe that's why. Um, so, so better education on the provider side. Um, I was also thinking, what do you think about this? Um, and I, this is a half-baked thought, so feel free to <laughs> contribute to it or say no. But I've done a lot of um, work on like acceptance and commitment therapy, which is the therapy approach I find most helpful for living with chronic unpredictable, you know, disease. And one of the things that 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 you're encouraged to do in that framework is like, you know, accept uncertainty and accept that like life isn't black or white. And I feel like that's so antithetical to how medical education is. That's all, because of medical education, like you said, it's diagnose, treat, cure, but fix stuff. And it's very threatening to people who are used to fixing to be faced with a problem that they can't fix. So I don't know what, that would look like other than teaching the, I I think teaching the medical students and the medical providers, like saying out in the open, sometimes you're going to be wrong. Sometimes you don't have enough information to make the perfect diagnosis. And that we need that to be a situation that is dealt or that is met with like your own self-compassion rather than your coping mechanism being blaming the patient or blaming some, you know what I'm saying? I don't know.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, so like I said, I I do have this unique perspective, right? So um, as a provider, I can tell you that we do have a lot of pressures to get it right and get it right the first time. Okay. So there's a lot of pressure on us. All right. So time is money and, you know, we really, we're we're really pressured. Um, So when I talk to these students of medicine, I say to them, It's okay to be wrong. It's okay not to have an answer. And it's okay to just validate the patient's concern, validate them and say, I I don't have the answer, but I will try to find the answer. I'll try to get you to the right person. You know, there's that investigative part, right? We're really detectives. And, you know, if the system keeps putting all these constraints on us, right, taking away our time and and putting all these pressures on us, um, again, medical gaslighting is just going to continue to flourish. However, um, honestly, if we just sit with a patient and and, and really say, I don't know, but I will do the investigation. I will talk to, you know, team, really good medicine is team oriented. So I will talk to a colleague. I will, you know, try to help at least get you somewhere to get this figured out.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think that that I'm going to just bring up that in my own therapy, at one point, my therapist, was like I literally, um, I'm trying to figure out how to condense this story, but long so I was teaching at an uh, occupational therapy assistant program and um I was struggling with a lot of anxiety around not knowing all the answers. And it's one of those things where when you say it out loud, you're like, well, I guess no one no one knows all the answers. But I was still struggling like when a student would ask something, I always felt like I had to have an answer. So he's like, your your goal for therapy this week is to say the words like I don't know to in front of your whole class that you're teaching and that was really hard for me and it wasn't just like she is a know-it-all but it was like it's threatening to feel like it's like anxiety is is the antidote to anxiety is like black or white answers right so saying i don't know and living in the uncertainty is the hard part and i think maybe teaching providers like i don't know if there's ever a point in yeah med school or pa school where they're taught it's okay to say you don't know it's okay to say and to say, that, and I think that we also need, this is where it gets a little tricky because I, I facilitate support groups for people with um, inflammatory arthritis. And a lot of times it's, I'll hear the patients say things like, well, the doctor didn't even know, the doctor said that they had to ask someone else. And they're like thinking that this is threatening the doctor's authority. And so we also have to educate them to be like, you know, these are not like easy diagnosis. It's not like, you know, a giant mole on your face that's like, I could look at that and see that you have skin cancer. You know, it's not like that. And so it it's actually the mark. I'll tell people it's a mark of a good doctor when they say they don't know, actually, it's not a sign of a like bad doctor.
1: Exactly. And, you know, when I also lecture to these students, I, I do, I make that point, um, you know, where it's okay. And your patient will respect you enormously. If you say, I don't have the answer, I have to you know really look this up and, and I think maybe as a provider saying you know there there isn't a lot of research on this you know there's there's not a lot of information so this is why I don't know if <laughs> I'm gonna go look it up or ask someone um you know but but honestly just really I think just you know that rapport okay this this yeah. the sacred trust that you have this provider patient relationship you know this connection And how a lot of the medical um, system failures just destroy that.
0: Yeah, I I remember um, the first time, I just think of little quick phrases we could teach the providers to say or have them practice or try. And one of them for me was just like, wow, you've literally the validation, like you've been through a lot. That's a lot. I remember the first time a physical, it was actually a physical therapist. So I'm an occupational therapist, which is a a separate field, often confused with physical therapy, but we are different. So um, like different licensing, different tests, different scope of practice, they do overlap, but um, they are officially different. And so um, this was a very expert, you know, very experienced one. And when I, and I kept minimizing that time, well, but this, but this, but this, and then then this happened, this happened. And he's like, you've been through a lot. And I will never forget that moment, you know, because it was just like, he really, it wasn't just that he said that he just, he could, I could tell he was attuned. He was listening. He was present. He believed me, you know? And it's like, every time, it's like every time a bell rings an angel gets this way, it's like, every time a doctor believes you, like it heals someone who's had medical gaslighting, you know?
1: Yes, exactly. And I think that's a great point is, you know, we're always in the as medical providers, we're always trying to fix everything, but it's okay. It's okay not to fix everything. It's okay. So just, you know, sitting with the patient, validating them, mm-hmm. and really just, you know, asking them questions, asking them questions, how their disease impacts their lives every day, you know, um, really connecting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And that, you know, and again, that's the time. That we can spend with the patients has been so eroded over, you know, due to like, again, that profit incentive that, but it doesn't take, I would argue that, you know, you really can be present in even a 15 minute encounter, you know? So um, the other thing that I'm curious your opinion on, I've tried over the years to, um, to kind of suss this out. I must feel like I need to talk to like a lawyer, but I, the thing that I find really frustrating about medical gaslighting is like in the legal system, it's like you're innocent till proven guilty, right? It's like absence of proof that you murdered someone doesn't mean that you pr- murdered them. That means you, we don't have proof, but it feels like with, if I present to the doctor, if a patient X presents to a doctor with these, this kind of diffuse set of symptoms, it's unclear. Like I have joint pains, worse thing in the morning, it's bilateral, but like my sed rate is looking good. And like my you know, all these other blood markers aren't really clearly off the charts yet. It's like so often it's, well, we don't know for sure what's going on with you. So most likely you're just anxious or you're just a, you know what I'm saying? It's like, why? Like if I, it would have been a such a different situation if when I presented with all of my systemic symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis. And then the one joint that was sprained I'm making air quotes here. I had a sprain, now as a college athlete, like starter, all conference pick as a defender. Like I was not somebody who was going to be, you know, on my laid back because of one finger that hurt. Like that was the very least of my worries. Now, of course I now know that was my first symptom of rheumatoid arthritis because it was hurting for like a year, but I was like, whatever, who cares about this? Um, and so it's like, if I, if they had said like, look, I believe that I, I, I believe you like literally the words, I believe you like this, that you've a lot of mystery things going on. Like I did also have like really dry eyes and I had, um, unintended weight loss, weakness, fatigue. Um, and you know, I, and I was anxious about that. And it was like, all that they care about is you're anxious. You must be just anxious. You have health anxiety, you're a hypochondriac, if they had just said, like, there's no other real explanation I can tell for what's going on with you. Like, I believe, and like, no wonder you're anxious. Who wouldn't be anxious? You know what I mean? And that, that conversation could have been so different, even if they had no answers, no diagnosis, just being able to say, I believe that, that you're you're really hurting. You are, you are sick, but we don't know why and what it is. It could be a little virus that going to be gone and you're going to feel fine in a week. You know what I'm saying? But I don't know um, if that's, like, too difficult of a conversation. How, like, why isn't that the default to say, like, to believe patients rather than jump? I I just personally believe there shouldn't even be a diagnosis of hypochondriac because I think it's, like, the death penalty. Like, if you can't be sure that that's what it is, then we shouldn't do it. But I don't know. What
1: do you think? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, so I think, you know, we need to humanize medicine, and that's exactly what you explained. Okay, so... So the patient has definitely fallen out of the center of care, which just is so paradoxical it doesn't even make sense to say those words together okay but really um we need to rehumanize medicine. I mean many of us can remember a time when medicine was so much more personalized, right So much more personalized you know and again, I think this corporatization really, um, Really has affected that you know you walk in the receptionist knows your name uh the nurse they know your family you know it's just um it's it's so depersonalized and really we're losing the humanity we're losing the humanity and um yeah. you know I do want to say uh bernie Brown, this wonderful social scientist I don't yes. know if you've oh love 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 um I, she has a quote and I don't want to say for you know exactly <laughs> I'll just paraphrase it here um about really true empathy is believing what someone tells you and seeing it as they see it, not as you see their symptoms. So, and I give this example to the students that I talk to and say, listen, your patient X may come to you and they may have a sore throat, but it's nothing like what you've experienced before. And it's nothing like what patient Z has experienced before. So it's really important to accept what they're telling you, accept it, believe it,
0: what, what's been the response when you've gone to talk to medical
1: students about this? Yeah, you know, I wasn't sure at first.
0: <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I
1: wasn't sure. But honestly, the response is, um, it's been very, very positive. Um, you know, they, it's amazing. I have a line of students, at, like every single time after I speak, <laughs> um, they come up to talk to me and many times, um, actually, I should say, basically at every single um, Lecture that I've done, I at least have one female that says, I'm being worked up for some kind of autoimmune disease. You know, Um, but really, they, it, this is so positive. And I know we've been talking about a lot of negatives. So I, I am so yeah. glad that I have the chance to interject this. They know the system is fractured and they want to change it. They do. They want to change it. And the thing is, if my story touches even just a handful, In a group, like uh, last month, I talked to I think it was sixty nine students. Honestly, if I just reach just a handful, think about how many more patients they'll see over their career versus just me seeing my you know x amount of patients per week. Um, So I really feel like I am changing medicine, a little at a time. Yeah, and
0: and that's why storytelling is so you know as humans, that's our that's our primary historically mode of communication sharing stories so I think yeah I'm I'm excited for your book to come out and <laughs> put in a plug-in I haven't even read it that I just trust just having known you that it's going to be amazing Thank um, you. <laughs> but um I don't want to forget to get back so you were so we were you still gaslit at the rheumatologist or no did they actually... oh
1: yeah it was oh I, you God. know we'll, no! I don't know if you no! I'm not really sure if it was worse than the primary. I'm not really sure you'll have to read the book and and decide for <laughs> So, um, so yes, yeah, so it had been seven months now since I had these symptoms, I, and the symptoms were just getting worse. I mean, I, I could work very just sporadically, you know, say I'd worked for a day and then I was out for like three or four days, just trying to recoup. I was honestly like, like dozing off at the wheel because the fatigue was just so severe. Um, you know, I sometimes needed help, like, walking to the bathroom, you know, just ADL stuff, like washing my hair. I mean, just unbelievable at 37. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sorry. I walk into this room tell- so here I'm so hopeful and I really believe that the answers are gonna be revealed, um, you know, that this was such an important, just a pivotal, because uh, I'd seen 10 other specials. So, um, <laughs> so I had these two index cards and one index card had uh, my symptoms front and back and the other index card had um, my symptoms matched with tests for diseases that had been yet to be rolled out. And um, I walked in with also a binder of my medical records. See, this is all, and again, because I'm blessed that I had this ability to put this all together. It was, you know, it was in chronological order. It was very, very organized. And I was just, you know, again, ready to just make this a very efficient visit um and sorry my dog is barking oh that's okay i can't hear it okay all right sorry no that will have to be edited out but no anyways. worries so um i go into the examination room and as the door opens and the provider comes in it felt like the air just just deflated and I started to talk, um, I said, you know, a physician assistant, these are my symptoms, and she just interrupted me. She would not let me speak and said, I reviewed everything from primary care and your premenopausal. She called me premenopausal, which actually is a wrong term to use. <laughs> I think she meant to say perimenopausal, but I had just had My hormone levels checked, and I literally went in my handy-dandy binder, and I pulled out the paper and said, no, 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 I'm not, actually. All my hormone levels are normal, and she refused to accept the papers, and then, you know, incidentally, I had an ovarian cyst that was found, like, several months before, and she said, no, it's all because of the ovarian cyst. So, again, I pulled out the paper. No, I had a CT scan. It was normal, Um, you know, refused, and she said, follow up with gynecology. I've already seen them and said you don't need any labs and was going to leave and this was all in a matter of i I swear probably like one minute and i was just like oh my gosh i thought at least i would be afforded a chance to um to to tell you know a concise um you know history give a concise history and they just he didn't afford me any humanity never mind being you know a, a medical provider you know and 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 kind of respecting my knowledge so um it was terrible so make a long story short very long um i really dug my heels in and when she said no like i'm she was getting ready to like walk out the door and i'm like i need lips i've been sick for seven months and my spouse was there who said no like she like i have to like walk her to the bathroom sometimes like she is so sick um So she finally gave in and ordered laps. only after she realized I was not leaving. I was not, I literally was not leaving. I thought, well, if security has to escort me out, I would learn no more or less about my disease, whatever's happening to my body right now. So um, Um, I really, finally, yeah, I just
0: want to respect, I just want to shout out your tenacity because I feel like I'm such a people pleaser that I really would have just been like, okay, and then like, just cried. So the fact that you were like, so determined, I'm sorry, I'm just shouting you out, but can but continue.
1: Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Because honestly, and I was so fatigued. I don't even know where I got that energy from. I I, I swear, I know, and I write this in my book that I, I believe it came from my soul. Like, I have no idea hmm. how I got the energy to just I just kept going down. My, my, you know, my cards and saying no. I need this because of this. Like when I told her about the dryness, she said, "Run a humidifier." but well, what? Like, of course oh. I'm running a humidifier. Like, I can't. Mm-hmm. Like, my eyes are glued together, and I have these patches all over my skin. You know, cooling on my face that were so obvious, um, dry yes. patches. So I just went down the list, and I just kept saying, "I need this test because of the symptom. I need this test because of the symptom." And I just wore it down. And I wasn't combative. I was not. Rude. I did not elevate my voice. I just simply, and I think that's important to say because, from a patient standpoint, you know, what can you do when you're being medically gaslit? And here it's so frustrating, right? You're so sick, and you know, it's easy to kind of fall into this, you know, confrontational manner, which definitely will make things worse. (laughs) Um, But no, I just stuck to the facts, you know, stuck to the focus, which was I need to walk out of here with a paper. And I did. I walked out with a lab paper and I walked down the hall um, and got my labs drawn. And a week later, I uh, got a notification from, I think it was like LabCorp, uh, you know, patient portal it, with my results. And I remember I couldn't work that day, I was too sick. And I remember exactly where I was when I opened up my laptop and uh, pulled up the results. And yes, yeah, so I mean my inflammatory markers, you know, platelets, uh, immunoglobulins, uh, my sed rate, um, we're all high, but also these autoantibodies were found for Sjogren's, so the anti-SSA.
0: If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks, and it's called RIM to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory, autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group, where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March, 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly thriveroom with a capital T in capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. So, okay, that's what I was going to ask. I know people listening, i going to be like, what was the name... What did you, what did you ask her
1: for? What? So, oh, I asked her for a list of things, Okay, okay. <laughs> but, um, I asked her to, because I asked her for, um, the sugar antibodies. I asked her for an ANA, I asked her for an anti-double-stranded DNA. I asked her for anti-Smith proteins. Um, I asked for, uh, just a variety of things, you know, rolling out all these different diseases. And especially my uncle actually died from set 55 and I definitely wanted the ANA. And I know the anti-double stranded DNA, they were so important to me. And of course she left off the ANA off the order. Um, And when I didn't see it on, when I did not see it on the result, I actually called the laboratory and they said, no, we looked, they actually pulled the order for me, which was so sweet. And they said, no, it's not on the order, ma'am. So and here I didn't have a follow-up appointment with this woman because she told me the the test would be normal no follow-up and she wrote that in all caps on my checkout paperwork no follow-up so you need like a museum
0: dedicated to this experience to make everyone walk <laughs> through it and see these artifacts and see like a role play like this could be so instructive like this is like one of the I'm sorry to like We can't really compare disease Olympics, but like, this is one of the most egregious examples I've seen. And I've seen a lot of examples, but because of the fact of you being in such a already well-trained medical provider perspective, like there is no excuse like that. I get a little bit more like, okay, whatever that there's no excuse for how you're treated. This is, this is, I'm like almost speechless, which is like pretty much impossible for me. So, okay, keep keep going.
1: Right, Well, good thing you're, you're seated because I'm not at the, at the oh, no. I should kind of handle it. What? No. Okay. We had be- no follow-up. So I called the office to say like, uh, she told me nothing would be found on the labs and I have no follow-up. And they said, okay, a nurse will call you back and believe thought that the provider herself called me. And I, she forgot who I was. Okay. Because Um, I said, Oh, it looks like I have primary Sjogren's. And she said, there's no way you have this disease. And I said, excuse me. Like I, again, was totally, totally shocked. Even though she was, you know, so, so dismissive to me, I still thought like, okay, well, we're both scientists and this is data. Okay. This is data. And it matches all my symptoms. And she said, there's no way you have this disease. Your autoantibodies are not enough for me to diagnose it and I'm like, okay, so do you want me to go to a different lab? No, I can just retest it in six months. And I said, that's not acceptable. I can't work right now. I'm I'm sick. And um anyway, so and by the way, my levels were like four times the normal amount. Okay. So um in any event, I as soon as and she hung up the phone on me because I she's like I can retest in six months. Call me back in six months and hung up. So I thought, oh my gosh, now I was so bewildered. I actually um, went online and I said, okay, and mean, I don't live in a small area. Okay. I live in the capital of upstate New York. Okay. So this happened in Albany, New York. Okay. So there's a lot of people that live here. Um, so I went online and I found out where, where's the best place for me to go to get diagnosed. So the Cleveland clinic, great for Johns Hopkins, um, there's also a Sjogren's Center, uh, University of, Pen- of um, Pennsylvania. So I got a, a two-month wait uh, for the Cleveland Clinic and a three-month wait for uh, the uh, Penn Medicine appointment. So I just had to tighten down and wait for those. appointments. Um, in the meantime, I saw primary care back who was like, well, she doesn't think you have Sjogren's. And I've never seen anybody with Sjogren's that You know, has anything but dry eye, dry mouth. So I heard that. You know, I'm realizing, wow, like I not only have this disease that's, um, it's misunderstood, like in the in the general public, but also in the medical community, severely Mm -hmm. misunderstood. So I ended up at the Cleveland Clinic, and I ended up getting diagnosed properly. Um, and a wonderful doctor, um, who was so sweet and really just said, you need to get somewhere where they understand the disease because we rheumatologists don't all understand this. So um I went to my appointment at the uh, university of Pennsylvania and I'm still a patient there. So I just wow. saw him a few months ago. You
0: shouldn't have to do this though. This is just, I cannot, I mean, I can believe it because, you know, but I also am, I'm just, again, practically speechless. I'm glad I didn't, you know, your book is now out. I didn't read it yet because this is like for me to learn. I'm like, it's like one of those reaction videos like where people react to like, Cheryl reacts to medical gaslighting stories. But I, one of my ideas also for combating this is having like difficult conversations with the, but unnecessary conversations with the providers who did the gaslighting. I wish I could say that I did go back. I think I did have my, this was the gastroenterologist in my case that did the majority of the gaslighting. And then, then my parents had to hire a, um, was back then called a, uh, concierge or concierge doctor who also said I was hypervigilant and too anxious and, you know, not really sick, but she would, you know, follow up, you know, she would be there available if I had any additional things, but she's like, stop tracking your symptoms. Stop Thinking about this so much, you know, um, and so she definitely knew when when I got the diagnosis of rheumatoid. It was when I had bilateral joint pain, not just the one finger. And I get that; that's like the cardinal symptoms for RA for me. So in your case, there was a lot more abductive symptoms a lot earlier. Once I had bilateral joint pain, it was like boom, got into the rheumatologist. My mom said it was the next day, and then she diagnosed me the next day. So, but back to but back to your story, I never went back to the gastroenterologist and told him. That I had RA the whole time, and that, um, and and so I wish I had done that. I don't, but I don't know what it would have done. Other than, I mean, I I, I do think that providers have to contend with learning. If we never teach the people that gaslit us what our ultimate diagnosis was, then they'll continue just thinking. You know what I'm saying? Like, have you thought? Have you ever done? I mean, it's it's emotional labor on your part. But have you thought about that or done that or know anyone who has? <laughs>
1: So, um, you know, the primary care, I did continue to see her until uh, December of 2015. So I got sick in February, and my last visit with her was in December. So I think it was um, either before or after I saw uh, the uh, Sjogren's doctor um, Mm -hmm. specialist in Pennsylvania. Um, And I did say to her, uh, I believe it was right after the Cleveland Clinic visit. And, you know, I brought, I printed off, you know, the uh, consultation report that said, no, she has Sjogren's. And I brought it with me and um, gave that to her. And she basically said, well, I guess you got your your diagnosis. And, you know, honestly, and I write about this in my book. This is, I really could have been a total jerk to her. And I probably should have been, okay. But I don't know, you know, I'm not exactly sure why I didn't Um, (laughs) really just tear into her. And I I really should have. you know, in some ways, I guess that's that's almost you know maybe one of the regrets I have. Um, you know, my spouse says, sign the book and send it to her because, yeah, I mean, she gave me some great information, you know great, great information for a book. but you know, you I think I would love to empower patients to, you know, report these things. you know, report it to, uh, you know, of course, because much of medicine is you know corporatized, so you know, you know, report it to uh, to someone. So patient
0: satisfaction, Um, the patient satisfaction scores mean a lot um, to, so being able to go talk to patient relations is usually what the department's called, but also risk management. If you think it's a, it's crossed the threshold into a true medical error, you know, being the failure to accurately refer and diagnose, um, which led to the, the progression of your disease. That's what's so egregious in rheumatology when this happens because there's the data for rheumatoid arthritis is really strong, early aggressive treatment. That is the way to get this inflammation under control. The longer you wait, it's like my doctor, my rheumatologist says it's like the fire in a house. You can, if you can contain it when it's just in the front entryway, it's gonna take really short amount of time. If you can wait till the whole house is on fire, it's gonna take longer. But um, so it's actively doing harm to not diagnose. I'm just, but so, but so you, so they said, it's almost like it became a power, a power struggle, like where like you wanted something, they had the power to give it to you, but they're like, because I had already, it's a cognitive confirmation bias, like psychologically that they had already decided that you weren't really sick. They're like, well, I'm not going to give in and give you this thing that you want. Cause that means you win when really what you're not trying to do is win a power struggle. You're trying to get healthy, you know?
1: Right, exactly. And, you know, we all took the oath, right? Hippocratic oath, you know, to do no harm, first do no harm. Yeah. And, you know, that's so, you know, counterintuitive to what, you know, what happened. Um, and, you know, honestly, I I do believe that it had to be as severe as what it was, though, in order for me to really um you know, take this experience. And, and I really do, I want to change the way patients are viewed and treated. Mm -hmm. And I think it just, you know, probably spiritually or something, I don't know, it had to be this severe in order to really make an impact on telling others, telling, you know, telling these students of medicine that I meet with, um, you know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I think that what I'm curious about is there there's this phrase in um that i learned about in psychology called like stereotype threat um where it's like when you're confronted with a stereotype it's like that's about your people whether it's like women or men or whatever that you kind of uh it it alters your performance and what i mean about what, what that relates to in this case would be like i'm I I wonder psychologically, like what the best angle is, because when you take a profession like doctors who are already at all time highs of burnout, you know, and their job satisfaction is low. I know so many doctors who are like, I wouldn't, I would never, I tell them that students don't pursue this. Like, this is not the profession it used to be. Like my uncle just retired. He's a pediatrician. Like amazing. You know, did house calls, like all these wonderful things that these, now the system is just so broken. So it's like, how do you make a space for them to be like, like, to feel unthreatened by this idea that, that, that and not defensive, that's the word I was looking for, defensive, like, I
1: don't know, what do you think? Yeah, you know, and I will tell you, though, that when I do meet with these students, you know, there's always a few that are kind of like, oh, you know, you can just tell like their faces, you know, know. lecturing to them, like, oh, I don't believe her, um, you know, but honestly, so. Between the few, most of them really do. Um, they want to make a difference, and I and I do put a positive swing on it and say you can be the difference. Yeah, yeah. And medicine will change internal from internal forces and external forces. So externally, from patients saying like I'm not going to deal with this substandard, you know, I'm not going to put up with this substandard treatment, okay. Um, but also internally. So what can providers do? And I usually give them the scenario: this fictitious Mrs. Jones. Uh, what if you see Mrs. Jones, you know, she's not your usual patient and she's a patient of Dr. X's and Dr. X is sick that day. So you see Mrs. Jones and and Mrs. Jones tells you Dr. X isn't listening. Dr. X, um, you know, has been blowing off her concerns and she's, you know, feels very ill um, Mm -hmm. and he's making it think, you know, making her think it's all in her head, you know, so you see Mrs. Mrs. Jones and you feel like, yes, I mean, there is some validity, you know, I have to I validate her symptoms and there is um, some, you know, data to suggest that we need to move forward with testing or referral or what have you. Are you going to go back to to Dr. X and are you going to say, listen, I saw this patient, saw Mrs. Jones, you know, and she's been saying X, Y, and Z, you know, are you going to do that? So I challenge them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of times they're like, whoa. And, you know, I think um, when I gave a lecture last month, um, someone said, well, it depends on, you know, how long I've been out in practice for, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I said, well, first of all, thank you very much for saying that. That really took a lot of courage to say that. Yeah. I wouldn't have said that. Just, <laughs> I can tell you this. Um, that would have been my response. But really, I want them to start thinking. Okay. Are you going to go, are you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Are you going to intervene when you find a provider not being empathetic? Or what about lunchroom discussions? I know I've been there. I've heard them. You know, this patient says they can't work. You know, this patient, you know, is lingering, you know, all this. So what are you going to do? Are you going to try to make a difference from inside?
0: Yeah. 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 And, and, and that's, that's important to get them so early on in their journey as, as medical students, I I think it's harder, a harder sell to the practicing providers. I'm not not saying, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm just trying to think like, what would, and, and then that's a conversation for another day. We talked earlier about maybe having a panel of like people who are both providers and patients to come together and be like, you know, what what, how can we open people's minds to this issue in a way that's not combative? And that is, like you said, yeah, it's, it starts with the, the micro interactions that that you have and feeling empowered to sit with the uncertainty, you know, with patients to say, we don't know. And, you know, and, um, and, and that's okay, you know, <laughs> but I think it's, it's a tricky one. And I do think that, especially if you say, okay, well, I know that my, my little vision of a world where, Hypochondriac is is not a diagnosis. That's not going to happen. So, where do you draw the line? If a patient is continuing to feel anxious and about their health, and they feel legitimate symptoms of you know pain or fatigue, and you, as a provider, truly feel that they don't have any organic you know condition going on, how do you How do you separate or differentiate that diagnosis from the? you know, in, I would argue intrinsically anxiety provoking experience of your body breaking down due to like inflammation, you know, from a, from a festering, but maybe not clinical yet autoimmune illness. Um, So it's tricky. It's tricky stuff, but you're right. It starts with sharing the stories. It starts with talking about this, naming it in the open Um, and, and um, also educating patients that this is a phenomenon so that they can be better advocates for themselves, um, like you had to advocate every single step of the way on your diagnosis, you know, and despite it being so severe. I mean, the fact that you couldn't do your ADLs, activities daily living, you couldn't brush your hair, go to the bathroom easily. I mean, that's so severe. It's not like you were just saying, I'm a little tired, you know. So I just I right, just
1: exactly. I mean, I was
0: bedridden for times yeah. in 2015. Oh, so sorry. Well, I know that people listening might be wondering. So we got to the diagnosis, but how is your Sjogren's um, treated today or how, what treatments, I know we can't probably go into every single little detail just with time for time's sake, but have you found some treatments that have worked or, you know, what's in
1: your treatment toolbox, in other words? Sure. You know, and unfortunately I'm kind of the, the person doesn't really respond very well to regular you know, traditional medications. Um, mm. So I've taken medications on and off over the years, um, really uh, rely on, um, you know, a combination of anti inflammatory kind of, you know, diet, you know, exercise. Meditation is huge. You know, I write in my book, I have a sentence that says, meditation, not medication, saved my life in 2015. And I'll tell you, it did because I had this just, I mean, at one point my said rate was 70, I might have mentioned. I mean, just this you know, outrageous inflammation, this outrageous, um, and, and really I had no medication for, it was 10 months that I was finally given prescriptions <laughs> for steroids yeah. and um, hydroxychloroquine. Um, you know, there's not one FDA approved medication for Sjogren's, the systemic symptoms of Sjogren's. Um, so there are some in the pipeline and I'm understanding that maybe, you know, another three to five years out at least. Um, so, or there's two in the pipeline, I should say. Um, so, really, just trying to take good care of myself, vitamins, supplements, eating, sleep, um, you know, and and again, I have trialed uh, multiple different medications over the years, but nothing yeah. regular that I can really tolerate
0: um um that's that's so frustrating that that there isn't there aren't more medication options. And that's why when I do a lot of patient education around, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, I try to kind of highlight that, you know, we are, the patient population is, in my opinion, lucky to have access to so many, you know, pharmaceutical options that can be really, really effective. And, um, but, but, so I, but back to, back to Sjogren's, you know, in terms of meditation, how did you, how did you learn? Like,
1: did you go through a program or? Yeah. You know, interestingly, I, before I got sick, Um, I thought I knew about meditation, but I can tell you, I did not until I was laying on the couch and couldn't get off the couch because of my physical symptoms. It threw me into this, uh, you know, this, this kind of concept of like, you, you need to figure out, you know, something here. Like you're going to, like, I really thought I was going to die. And, um, you know, I felt like I had to go back in my roots as a chiropractor, you know, so this holisticness Um, and thank God I had that to go back on. Okay, (laughs) let's just say that. But really, you know, people will say to me, well, how did you meditate? Didn't you like have all these thoughts going through your head? And yes, I did. But honestly, that was the only thing that actually made me feel a little bit better was putting myself into a very deep meditative states. And. In these meditative states, I was—I feel like I was actually able to just connect with, you know, my soul, like the 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 deepest part of me as a human being. And honestly, I would have never been there without this illness. Never, you know, I was really living on autopilot, and I thought that I knew happiness and and really, but I wasn't grateful for things before I got sick. So you know, I feel like it's been this whole cycle of, you know, just really, just I learned so many things about myself. So, and I think that's where the peace comes in. you know, living peacefully amid chronic disease is is so difficult. and it's it's different for everyone. But for me, it was acceptance, which was really the real journey. yeah, it was acceptance. and it was also transformation. So transforming this to, well, now I can help people. Now I can actually make good out of this. So, you know, there's some positivity to my suffering, you know, really the positivity really outweighs the suffering that I had.
0: And I, well, you've, you've touched on my favorite word, which is acceptance, which used to be my least favorite word. So um, I, I love that. And I think, yeah, turning, I once heard this phrase, I wish I knew who to give credit to, but turning your pain into your purpose is something that I think, yeah, taking what you've been through and making something productive out of it, you know, in your book, by the way, I want to make sure to say that name of your book, the girl on a gurney trade girl on a gurney trading my white coat for a hospital gown. Right. Okay. that's okay. correct. Yeah. Such a great title. Um, and do
1: we have a date when it will be out? Um, no, but if okay. you know, uh, your audience members go to my website, I will be putting updates there and I have a, a, a newsletter subscription and I will definitely be sending out updates, uh, by the end of next year and, um, which is really exciting. Oh, that's
0: exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, yeah. And I'm just, I know that your book is going to help so, so many people. Um, hopefully it will be one of those books that gets recommended in, um, you know, medical schools as well, but yeah, I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing about the um, meditation. I also, I was always like, I can't meditate cause I am a high energy person. I don't like to sit still and learning. Okay. Wait, it doesn't just mean sitting still and being peaceful. It means being present with what you're, whatever you're feeling and taking, you know, breathing through whatever you're feeling. But um, it's been really, really helpful for, for me as well. So for anyone skeptical about meditation, maybe after hearing us, you might want to give it a try.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And really, you know, being mindful, right? So it, it could just be going to your cupboard and, you know, taking out your favorite spice and just kind of, you know, just just whiffing the aroma and how does that make you feel and mm-hmm. and and really you know just it's and again it's different for every person um really the these healing meditations that I still do every
0: yeah. day. Oh wow really
1: just are so powerful.
0: Do you have any recommendations of like books or websites so people can learn
1: more about meditation and mindfulness? You know here's the thing and people and again, people ask me this, and I kind of just, I really just, truthfully, once I quieted my mind down, I was just able to just visualize, and just I do, and I don't do any guided meditations, really. Um, you know, uh, once in a while I do, but mostly I just do self guided. But I do want to say the power of now. Yeah. Um, by Eckhart Tolle. Oh boy, you know, right. So you have to know his quote about acceptance of the unacceptable is the greatest source of grace in this world. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wow. He talks a lot about meditation and just really just staying in the moment.
0: Mm -hmm. That's yeah. A lot of people that are in my uh, room to thrive groups also swear by um, like either the, if you need more guidance, like the headspace app or insight timer, uh, those come up a lot um, as you know, recommended, like guided. I like to have guided personally because I, my mind wanders a lot if i don't have guided at, at this stage maybe in the future i'll be better at self guided
1: <laughs> i know but, i was talking to a friend of mine not that long ago and she's and she's like you really don't do guided meditation I'm like that <laughs> yeah but well, I, yeah it, it took a lot of practice believe me it, it, a lot but when you're laying there and you can't really do anything then you kind of have time to um
0: yeah Um, yeah, and I have, we have a couple of rapid fire questions before we wrap it up. Um, you know, one of mine, I I wanted just to add this one in, but I think you've kind of, I mean, I don't even know what the answer to this, for you would be, but if you were, if you were having the symptoms that you had before you got diagnosed today, what would you do
1: differently? So I will say that I did have some self-doubts here and there. Okay, because I think part of that was also a little bit of the manipulation from you know my primary care provider who was telling me you need to take this antidepressant, you need to go on vacation, you know. um, So what I did was when I had um, my worst symptoms, then I would go get labs, and obviously the labs would be they would correlate to my symptoms. So yes, okay, my said rate sixty, and you know I feel terrible, Um, or if I felt a little better during certain times. And yes, okay, now my set rate's 45. Um, So I think that's self-doubt. So I would eliminate that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, You know, and again, I didn't have a lot of it, but honestly, even, you you know, just, just to really, um, you know, not have had to, you know, run and get labs, like just to kind of prove to myself objectively, no, listen, this is the data. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's that makes a lot of
0: sense. Um, Do you have any words of wisdom for newly diagnosed patients, either with chauvin's or a similar condition? Sure. You know,
1: I think really release the expectations of what you think your life. You know what you projected your life to look like, and that was huge for me. And, you know, um, I actually when I lecture to the students of medicine too, I tell them like what you picture your life to be, it may may end up being very different, just like mine. So yes, so I would say to newly diagnosed patients, you know, really um, don't compare yourself to others, really Mm -hmm. release the expectations and know that there is going to be a learning curve, you know, until you find that balance, okay, of what you, um, you know, what you can do with your routine. And there may be times when that, when, when that balance is definitely, um, definitely change depending on flares and just, you know, being, I guess, you know, acceptance of the, um, you know, the unacceptable and really the uncertainty. Yeah. Oh
0: man, you're hitting all my, just so hard. Yeah. It's so hard. (laughs) And when I think when you say, you know, release the expectations of what you're projected your life to look like, I would say I would, I, I, that reminds me of, um, this concept of what is a normal life. Cause a lot of people say, they're trying to be comforting to patients and they'll say, oh, well you can live, let's say with rheumatoid arthritis where there's all these good treatments. You can live a totally normal life with rheumatoid arthritis now. Like that's how they define what hope is, is like basically living a life indistinguishable from someone with a chronic illness. But in a way that's kind of like a form of, form of subtle ableism, right? Cause you're saying like a life without chronic illness is like the norm, that's normal. And that's what I want. Right. And that's the best life to have, you know. So versus, you know, saying like disability is the only um, what do they call it? Disability is the only minority group that anyone could be part of at any time. Like your life could change in an instant. Nothing will protect you from it. Like, no amount of good eating, exercise, meditating, it can happen to you at any time. One cell in your body could decide to go rogue and you know, um. So, sorry, that's my little soapbox, but saying that, you know, that doesn't mean your life is over if you have chronic illness.
1: Right. Exactly. And I just want to also say, you know, having a medical degree also, you know, doesn't, that's not going to protect yes. you either. This white coat is not going to protect, um, mm-hmm. but no, absolutely. It's, it, it is, it's so really um, it's hard and you have to find, you know, kind of your individual piece and, you know, um, According to the CDC, over 60% of, you know, all U.S. adult Americans have at least one chronic illness, at least one. So we really do need to reimagine chronic disease and disability in this country. We do. And it starts with society. It starts with really a respect for everyone. So everyone needs to be treated in an equitable manner, right? Everybody needs to be treated Mm -hmm. equally.
0: Yeah. That's where it starts. Hundred um, percent. On a different note, what is something that's bringing you joy right now?
1: Doesn't have to be related to sugarcrumbs or anything.
0: Like literally anything.
1: You know, um, what's bringing me joy is really knowing that um, that I have taken this difficulty and I'm really um, have made it into a triumph, and really helping others. You know, makes it a blessing. And I really feel like if I can just help you know, one other person just avoid the suffering, that extra suffering that I had um, through medical gaslighting, you know, really, it's just all worth it.
0: I feel like if I could give you a, a handle on Instagram, it would be like anti-gaslighting crusader. <laughs> I wonder it that was taken. I love it. Little 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 social media advice on the side here. Um, okay, yeah, let's look it up right now when we're done. Okay, what is it? Last, I love that. I love that. And what does it mean to you? Last one to live a good life and thrive with rheumatic disease. I think Sjogren's falls under that an umbrella of a inflammatory
1: autoimmune, you know, immune rheumatic disease. Exactly, and I think just finding the good in the little things, you know, just living a life of gratitude, which. And, you know, again, I want to say I was not a total jerk before I got sick, but yeah. honestly, I had no, I, I just had no clue. Like I just was just on in this automatic pilot and but really just being grateful, like, okay, like I was able to get a shower, you know, by myself. And, you know, I'm just so grateful for all the things that I am able to do and um, really just finding the little things, you know, um, just honestly, just finding the little things in everyday life.
0: So, so true. You really don't appreciate those like until, until they're taken away, until that ability to move through the world with ease is, is taken away from you. Um, so I, I love that. I hope I think that's good advice to anyone listening. Um, and, uh, I'm going to put all these links in the show notes, which are on my website, or, um, if you're watching this on YouTube, also there, but you know, to, to your website and your YouTube channel and everything, but, um, where can people find you? Where, where do you want them to go?
1: Sure. I think my, uh, my website, com is probably the best way. And then there's links to, um, to my social media um, pages that way. And also I have articles um, that are on there and, and, and other um, media webinar, other things that they can uh, watch and listen to and
0: read. That's so, that's so great. I, I really hope that this, um, you know, I think that there has been an upswell, if that's the right word, of awareness of medical gaslighting in the last, you know, few years. And with long COVID and, you know, the increase in incidence of autoimmune conditions, um, I'm hoping that there's even more and better, you know, an understanding of this phenomenon so that we can make it reduce in frequency. <laughs> so thank you for everything that you're doing to help others not go have to go through what you did. Because that was like I said, I'm not playing, you know, I'm not trying to say like, you know, everyone's experience is horrible if they've gone through medical gaslighting. But I the yeah, the degree to which you were explicitly told like I will not help you because you're not sick is just ridiculous. <laughs> so so I'm just I'm if I were you, I'd be like, I'm never talking about this again. It's so stressful. Like so thank you for taking on the emotional labor. You know, it takes time. You're taking time out of your day to share this with me. And you're taking time to share it with the medical students and with your books. So um I appreciate that. So I get I, I'm getting like stress. I'm feeling my armpits like sweating thinking about your story. I'm so frustrated for you. So I can't imagine what you're feeling like reliving it you know, well,
1: you're like, thank you for that validation. I appreciate
0: that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. No problem. And I'm really, I'm working on, um, I got this comment on my YouTube channel that like, I'm in, inter- I interrupt people too much. So I apologize. I just, I had to a few times be like, ah! I can't believe it's happening. I cannot believe it. So again, no, fine. yeah, <laughs> thank you again. And hopefully we'll, we'll catch up um soon and if everyone could check out again girl on a gurney or uh rebeccahosey.com is is the website right i'm looking down at my notes yep yes. um, com. okay bye-bye for now
1: thank you Bye. thank you for
0: having me Bye. thank you so much for listening to another episode of the arthritis life podcast just shoot me an email at info at my I can't wait to hear from you.